ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we are continuing with Kitab Tawheed. We arrived at the chapter Bab Maja'a fil istisqa'i bil anwa' The chapter regarding seeking rainfall via the stars. And we had come to the hadith of Abu Malik al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال أربع في أمتي من أمر الجاهلية لا يتركونهن That there are four things in my ummah in the Muslims from the affairs of jahiliya meaning the days of pre-Islamic ignorance, that they do not leave four things in my ummah from the days of pre-Islamic ignorance that they do not leave. And the first of them, Al-Fakhru Bil-Ahsab, then Al-Ta'nu Fil-Ansab, and then Al-Istisqa'u Bin-Nujum, and then An-Niyaha. The first of them, Al-Fakhru Bil-Ahsab, meaning to boast about your, your position, your status, your lineage. And then the second, Al-Ta'nu Fil-Ansab, to criticize and belittle others in their lineage. Al-istisqa'u bin-nujum, seeking rainfall via the stars. An-niyaha, the wailing over the dead. Before we get into those four, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions here, that when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, these four affairs are from the affairs of Jahiliyyah. This indicates to us two points. Firstly, Yunsabu ila al jahiliya. Yani qawluhu min amri al jahiliya la yatrukunahunna dalla hadha ala mas'alatayn. That statement of the messenger indicates two things. الأولى ينسب إلى الجاهلية وعلى أنه محرم لأن الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم ذكر هذا من باب الذم والتحذير منه The fact that the messenger has attributed and associated these four affairs to جاهلية is to indicate that they are affairs that are impermissible now, and that this is a criticism of those affairs, that these are affairs of jahiliyyah, to show us by that statement that they are impermissible and they are criticized. Well, uh, now. And there are ayat in the Qur'an, there is the ayah where this same point is used in the ayah, وَلَا تَبَرَّجْنَ تَبَرُّجَ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ الْأُولَى وَأَقِمْنَا الصَّلَاةَ وَآتِينَا الزَّكَاةَ وَأَطِعْنَا اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ In that ayah, it gives the same type of example, وَلَا تَبَرَّجْنَ تَبَرُّجَ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ الْأُولَى Regarding the women that do not uncover yourselves and expose yourselves as it was done 
in the original Jahiliyyah, at the time of Jahiliyyah. So that same type of concept is in the Qur'an as well, attributing an action to the affairs of Jahiliyyah, to pre-Islamic ignorance. So the fact that the Messenger has done it here, and that it was done in the Qur'an, then whenever that is done, it is to show that the affair being mentioned is haram, and that it is something criticized and dispraiseworthy, and that the Muslims therefore need to abstain from it. Secondly, the second benefit here, before getting into the four, al-mas'alatu thaniyah, أَنَّهُ قَدْ يَبْقَى شَيْءٌ مِنَ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ فِي بَعْضِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ That this highlights to us that sometimes certain affairs of jahiliyyah may still remain in the Muslims, certain characteristics from jahiliyyah, certain traits, from Jahiliyyah may still remain amongst the Muslims, individuals or groups of them. فَيَجِبُ عَلَيْهِ الْحَذَرُ مِنْهُ So then what is required is to take precaution from these affairs. وَالتَّحْذِيرُ التحذير مِنْهُ And to warn against those affairs. وَالتَّوْبَةِ إِلَى اللَّهِ مِمَّنْ وَقَعَ شَيْءٍ مِنْ ذَلِكَ مِنْ أُمُورِ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ And for the one who does fall into those characteristics of jahiliyyah, for that person to repent from what he fell into. So then what are these four exactly? The first one, الْفَخْرُ بِالْأَحْسَابِ وَالْمُرَادُ بِالْحَسَبِ شَرَفُ الْإِنسَانِ وَمَكَانَتُهُ وَمَكَانَتُهُ فِي الْمُجْتَمَعِ The first is الْفَخْرُ بِالْأَحْسَابِ Boasting about your, what you could describe as social status. Boasting about your, your status and your rank and your, your level of where you are in society. What do they say? Nobility of one's ancestors. ancestors. There they've explained it as the ancestors, but the Sheikh, he explains, it doesn't necessitate only boasting about your ancestors, boasting about your social status generally, which will often be linked to your lineage and your ancestors that exists in various societies across the world where they have the different castes, the caste system, where you have certain castes within that society that are considered as the high up ones. And then you have other castes within that society that are considered the low down ones and that exists within those societies. So al-fakhru bil-ahsab, it is boasting about your nobility and your social standing. And perhaps as we understand these days about the castes, and that you are from the high and noble caste, whereas somebody else is from the working class. So here we are being told, you are not to boast about your nobility in social standing and your caste and your, your rank as to where you are in the society and your lineage and ancestors giving you that title in your family, you do not boast about those affairs. لِأَنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ يَقُولُ Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ إِنَّا خَلَقَنَاكُمْ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ وَأُنْثَى وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلَ لِتَعَارَفُوا 
inna akramakum indallahi atqakum that oh people we have created you male and female and made you into tribes and clans that you may become acquainted but then inna akramakum from all the the different tribes and clans and the way people have made and their ancestors regardless of all of that inna akramakum indallah atqakum the most noble of you with allah is the most pious of you not the one who says that i am of the high caste in society and you're of one of the low castes not that but the one who has taqwa the one who has the greatest piety that is the one with the greatest nobility with allah not the one who can say but my ancestors we are we are of this lineage and that lineage and we have this uh, social standing in history it is not of that as they say in this country we are the aristocrats and they say we are the nobles that used to uh, 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 be in charge of the counties and other things and our ancestry is that noble ancestry we say that is not what brings about nobility for a person with allah what brings about nobility is whether you are a person of taqwa fal karam indallah huwa bit taqwa la bil hasab so your nobility in or with allah is through your taqwa not through your ancestry and social status and standing يقول الشيخ محمد بن عبد الوهاب رحمه الله إذا كان لا يجوز للإنسان أن يفخر بعمله هو فكيف يفخر بعمل أبيه وجده الشيخ محمد بن عبد الوهاب the author himself he mentioned at another place that if it is not even permissible for a person to boast about his own deeds and social standing etc then how can he possibly boast using his ancestry you're not allowed to even boast yourself where you are let alone trying to use your historical ancestry to boast your level and status so this indicates all of it it is impermissible to elevate oneself saying that i am from a noble caste and my ancestry we are the nobles of the people that is not what brings you nobility with allah what will bring you nobility is if you have taqwa so you may be a person of noble ancestry and if you are a person of taqwa then yes you have nobility from the angle of your taqwa not because of your ancestry and status there the second one from the affairs of jahiliya so that is something that was known in jahiliya that is something that was known in jahiliya that a person would say but my family my ancestors we were the ones who were always the leaders and we were the ones always in charge and my my grandfather my great grandfather my great uncle they were the ones who were in charge here in charge there we are the high elevated rank in society and our ancestors that's what they used to do boast and elevate themselves over others with the claims of their ancestry and their caste compared to the caste of others so that is from the actions and behaviors of jahiliya that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam forbade the second one at-ta'nu fil ansab to criticize and abuse and speak ill and evil of the lineages of other people at-ta'nu fil ansab bi an yatanaqqas ansab an-nas li'annahu yu'azzimu nafsahu wa li'annahu yatanaqqas al-akhirin wa kilahuma madhmum 
So belittling the lineage of other people in the same kind of way as the first one by saying, but you're a low caste. Like these days, is it not well known that they say we're not going to marry into those people? What are you talking about? Don't you know what their caste is? You know, people do this in their societies, in their communities. And this is impermissible to belittle a person because of his ancestry or what their lineage was. To belittle their lineage and say their lineage, they were this, they were that. They were the workers, they were the worst, they were the poverty, they were... To belittle the lineage of people, the caste of people, whatever, tribes of people. So that is something which again used to occur in Jahiliyyah. That they viewed, they had this social system of elevation and degradation and castes. And they belittled some and they elevated themselves, others. All of that is impermissible in Islam. To have that type of system within yourselves and belief within yourselves of castes. And this one is better and that one is lower. And these ones are nobles and they are despicable. And yet the despicable may be the ones who you claim are despicable. But they are the ones who are obedient to Allah, uphold the rights of Allah, establish their prayers and you with your noble lineage and descent and everything in your family you claim. And all of them may be sinners and wrongdoers. So that is the first one and two. The first two from the affairs of Jahiliya. But the point for this chapter is the third one here now. From the affairs of Jahiliya. Al-istisqa bil-anwa. That they used to seek the rain from the stars, via the stars. Al-istisqa asluhu talabu suqya. That they sought the water, the rain. Qala Allah Ta'ala, وَإِذِ اسْتَسْقَى مُوسَى لِقَوْمِهِ فَقُلْنَ اضْرِبِّ عَصَاكَ الْحَجْرِ In the ayat in Al-Baqarah, where it talks about the story of Musa alayhi salam, when he sought water for his people so he was told to strike the stone with his staff and then the story continues but the meaning of that is al-istisqa to seek the water to seek the rainfall so in jahiliyyah when they didn't have rainfall how did they seek the rainfall al-istisqa bin nujum huna laysa ma'nahu أَنَّهُمْ يَطْلُبُونَ مِنَ النُّجُومِ أَن تُسْطِيَهُمْ لَكِنْ مَعْنَهُ أَنَّهُمْ يَنْصِبُونَ الْمَطَرِ إِلَى النُّجُومِ فَيَقُولُونَ مُطِرْنَ بِنَوْئِ كَذَا وَكَذَا So the meaning isn't that they just made dua to the stars give us rain, that they were calling upon the stars to give them rain, not like that. But when the rain did come, they said it was from the stars. And they attributed it to the stars. That is what they would do. They would attribute the rain to the stars. The meaning isn't that they actually used to make dua, give us rain or stars, as they do to the graves, etc. But they believed that it is the stars that are doing that. And that the stars are the ones creating and bringing that rainfall. So they would attribute the rainfall to the stars and that was the incorrect action. So we've already mentioned last time, and the Shaykh he highlights again here. فَصَّلَ الْعُلَمَاء إِنْ كَانَ يَعْتَقِدْ أَنَّ النُّجُومَ هِيَ الَّتِي أَنزَلَتِ الْمَطَرِ وَأَثَّرَتْ فَهَذَا كُفْرٌ مُخْرِجٌ مِنَ الْمِلَّةِ That if a person believes the stars, they themselves sent the rain, and they are the ones that impacted and affected the affairs of the dunya and sent the rain, then that is of course major kufr, to believe the stars do that themselves. وَإِنْ كَانَ يَعْتَقِدُ أَنَّ الْمُنَزِّلِ لِلْمَطَرِ هُوَ اللَّهِ وَأَنَّ النُّجُومَ إِنَّمَا هِيَ أَسْبَابِ But if a person knows and believes that Allah is the one who sends the rain, but believes the stars are the means to it. The stars are the means via which the rain comes. وَأَضَافَ ذَلِكَ إِلَيْهَا مِنْ بَابِ التَّسَاهُلْ فِي التَّعْبِيرِ 
فهذا يعتبر شركا وكفرا أصغر لا يخرج من الملة so if a person believes it is Allah who sends the rain but attributes it to the stars as a means the stars are the means via which we get the rain it is Allah who sends it though not the stars who create it and send it but via the stars it comes because of the stars that is the reason for the rain then that is minor kufr that is the minor form of the shirk because ultimately he believes and recognizes it is Allah who sends it not the stars walakinnahu muharram shadid at-tahrim however all of this is haram and shadid at-tahrim meaning extremely a high degree of haram that this is something completely impermissible completely disallowed لِأَنَّهُ وَسِيلَهُ إِلَى الشِّرْكِ الْأَكْبَرِ So to even think that the stars are a means to the rain coming is completely impermissible to have that belief because that opens up the door to major shirk afterwards. You start believing that the stars, they are the ones that impact things and via them the rain comes. If you do that, then eventually you may end up Believing in some forms of major shirk. وَلِأَنَّ الشِّرْكَ إِنْ كَانَ أَصْغَرْ فَهُوَ خَطِيرٌ And even minor shirk is dangerous. Even minor shirk is dangerous. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَأْ that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forgive that you commit shirk with him, but he forgives all else to whom he wills. The shirk in this ayah, does it specify major shirk? It just says shirk. Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk alongside him. That's what the ayah says. It's not specific to major shirk. And that's why many of the scholars, they say, it includes all types of shirk, major and minor. Allah does not forgive major or minor shirk. But then what does that mean? On the day of judgment, if Allah does not forgive major shirk, that means you're going to stay in hellfire forever. And if Allah does not forgive minor shirk, that means you are definitely going to be punished in the hellfire first, but not Forever, because minor shirk does not exit you from Islam. But it means you will definitely be punished for a time for the one who dies upon minor shirk. Because the other opinion is that minor shirk doesn't come into that topic and that minor shirk comes into the general category of sins that we know can be tahta al-mashi'ah. So some of them say minor shirk could come into that category. However, what seems to be correct is that minor shirk is shirk. It's a form of shirk. And the ayah does not specify one way or the other. So anybody dies on any form of shirk, major or minor, without having repented, then there is certainly punishment in the afterlife. Either complete punishment forever if it was major shirk, or a temporary punishment if it was minor shirk. Then after that, would be the paradise for them. The fourth thing that is mentioned, before that, قال العلماء أما لو قال سقينا في نوء كذا فأتى بفي فلا بأس بذلك لأن هذا ليس فيه نسبة المطر إلى النجم إنما يقول سقينا في هذا الوقت سقينا في نوء كذا Sheikh says, if a person was to say that the rainfall, it came when there was a certain star or, a, or, or during the time that a certain star was visible, etc. In that case, it is an informational statement only. You're only giving an information that the rain came at the time when that particular star happened to be there. You're not attributing the rain 
to having come via that star or because of that star, it is simply a factual statement. If it is simply a factual statement like that, that the rain came during the time when that star or this star was there, that isn't the shirk, then you are not associating it to that. The point the sheikh is making there is that you have the belief that the rain came because of the star. If you have that belief, that is the issue. That you believe it came because of that star. That was the means for the rain coming. That is the issue. That is the shirk. Otherwise, it is not. The fourth thing mentioned from the characteristics of Jahiliyyah. And again, now you see in real life, again, another example that exists among the people. Anyaha ala al-mayyit. Wailing and screaming at the death of someone. Anyaha raf'u al-sawt ala al-mayyit min baab al-jaza' wa al-tasakhut. Niyaha is the wailing that occurs at the death of someone when that person does so out of uh, meaning out of their great degree of uh, upsetness, their great degree of grief and sadness and their great degree of uh, agitation at the whole series of events and what is going on in the decree. Because you often hear people say and make comments along the lines of, and you hear it from the kuffar all the time, when uh, uh, somebody dies and they do their eulogies and things, he didn't, he didn't what? He doesn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to go. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to go. And uh, along the lines of, when they are screaming and shouting, and the Muslims may do this too, why him? Why her? What did he do? What did she do? Screaming and shouting, those kinds of statements is impermissible. Because it indicates your, your, your issue or your disgruntlement with the decree of Allah. It indicates your disgruntlement with the decree of Allah. Why him? He didn't deserve to go. Why did it have to be him? All those kinds of comments and those kinds of statements indicate your disgruntlement against the decree of Allah. So that screaming and shouting and why him and why did this happen and he didn't deserve it and screaming and shouting and wailing, that is impermissible and that is known as niyaha. وَإِذَا صَحِبَهُ شَقٌ لِلثَّوْبِ أَوْ لَطْنٌ لِلْخَدِّ أَوْ تَعْدَادٌ لِمَحَاسِنِ الْمَيِّتِ أَوْ نِيَاحَ وَالنَّدْرِ وَجَزْعٍ فَهَذَا كَبِيرًا مِنْ كَبَائِرِ الذُّنُوبِ And then he mentions some of the other types of things. When people, and you see them sometimes, you know, like completely lose it at the death of someone. And they're falling around and they're screaming and shouting and wailing. And they may even be ripping them clothes, their own pockets and clothes. And ripping them apart and screaming and shouting and grabbing here and grabbing there. And ripping the pockets and going crazy as they say. That is mentioned as well. Doing that type of behavior is also impermissible. Striking yourself, again very common you see it amongst the people when they've completely lost it at the death of someone screaming, shouting, and they are beating themselves, striking themselves everywhere at that time, and you see them, that occurring, that is also impermissible. And that is mentioned in a hadith. لَيْسَ مِنَّا messenger said, not from us is the one who strikes himself 
and tears his garments and calls out with speech and words from Jahiliyyah. Speech and words, why him? He didn't deserve it and all those kinds of things. On top of that, the Sheikh says, and again you see this amongst the non-believers, تعداد لمحاسن الميت When they do their, their eulogy things and everything, when they have their funerals, they have a, a, a time allocated within that funeral where everybody gets up in the church or wherever and they deliver small speeches and they talk about all of the good things about this person and this person used to do this and there was one time this incident occurred between us and uh, we were at the charity, all types of things about the goodness of this person. The sheikh says that is not permissible. To be sitting there at the time of the death of someone and he this and he that and giving these, as they call them, I think like the eulogies of that person and mentioning all of his good deeds and what he was and what he did and all those kinds of things. Literally listing out the good deeds and the good characteristics and the goodnesses of this deceased individual. That is exactly what they do. Exactly what they do, the non-believers. They have time allocated as part of the funeral service where the close relatives and the friends, they come up and they give their speeches doing exactly that, listing out all of the, the life of this person and he this and he that. And it's impermissible. This is not from the ways of the Muslim funeral. And then screaming, shouting and having that uh, complete loss of control over your affairs and saying things that you shouldn't be saying, and getting to levels of uh, being upset that are beyond the boundaries, no control, no patience. If you have no control at that time at all, then that indicates you have no patience at all. A person needs to recognize this is a calamity, no doubt. No doubt it's a calamity, the death of someone. But there needs to be patience even at that time. That does not mean that a person cannot be sad. Of course, a person is saddened. Of course, a person grieves. Of course, a person even cries. And their heart is saddened and they feel that grief. Nothing wrong with any of that. The Messenger ﷺ, he mentioned at the death of his son Ibrahim that the eyes shed the tears. They shed tears and the heart hurts. But we will only say what? Please as Allah. So no doubt all of that is there. And that is, as Sheikh Rabi' mentioned, mercy that Allah places into the heart of a person. It is mercy that Allah places into the heart of a person. That you experience those feelings at the death of a beloved one. Mercy that Allah has put into the hearts of the humans, one to another. Believers in particular, one to another. So that is not a problem, but it is then crossing the boundaries beyond that which is impermissible. وَالْوَاجِبْ عِنْدَ نُزُولِ الْمُصِيبَةِ الصَّبْرُ وَالْاحْتِسَابِ لَلْجَزَعْ وَالْتَسَخُطِ And when some calamity occurs, then what is required of the Muslim is to have a sabr, Patience, patience at the time of calamity. And that's when your patience will show. Because as they say, it's easy enough to be patient when there's no calamity or difficulty pressurizing you at the time. Anyone can be patient then. But the reality of patience will show when you're in a situation of a calamity and distress. Then it will show whether you are patient or not. And also... Al-ihtisab. Al-ihtisab, meaning that you know this difficulty that has occurred, that has been decreed, whatever calamity it may be, that you have al-ihtisab, meaning you are patient and maintain your trust in Allah, hoping for the reward from Allah, for that difficulty that you're facing and the patience that you demonstrate upon it, then you hope for the reward from Allah for that. Al-ihtisab. Hoping that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
will reward you upon that patience you showed and demonstrated at the time of the calamity, that trust and dependence and reliance that you maintained in Him at that time of calamity and distress. That is what is needed. Not falling into some type of depression over the affairs and losing hope. Losing hope, it's a calamity, we are finished, it's this, it's that. That is not the way of the believer. Knowing that everything is in the control of Allah. Everything is decreed by Allah. And that Allah does everything only upon absolute wisdom. Then you can never be in a state of that's it, we're done, it's finished and depression and gone. That is not the way that the Muslim behaves in whatever in whatever the circumstance or situation may be, but you remain patient and you make dua, and you rectify your shortcomings, because at the time of calamity, as Ibn Taymiyyah said, think about your own shortcomings. Perhaps there are shortcomings you need to rectify. Rectify them, because the calamity brings to light your affairs. So rectify the shortcomings you may be experiencing. That you may be in yourself. وَالنِّيَاحَ دَلِيلٌ عَلَىٰ عَدَمِ الرِّضَىٰ بِقَضَاءِ اللَّهِ وَقَدَرِهِ So the one who screams and shouts and says those words and tears their garments and those types of affairs at the death of someone, that shows their lack of contentment with the decree of Allah. Their lack of contentment with the decree of Allah. Their lack of patience. Dalilun ala adam is sabr. Wal ihtisab. An evidence upon their lack of patience and their lack of ihtisab, meaning remaining patient, hoping for the reward from Allah. They have lost that. They've forgotten that. They've forgotten about the reward from Allah and what Allah will give them if they remain patient during the time of calamity. Return back to him in obedience upon Tawheed, abandoning the sin and the shirk. And that is a reward for them if they can do all of that. So those are the four things mentioned in the hadith regarding the affairs that are from the affairs of Jahiliyyah. He then continues and says, قَالْ إِذَا لَمْ تَتُبْ قَبْلَ مَوْتِهَا تُقَامُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ وَعَلَيْهَا سِرْبَالِ مِنْ قَطِرَانِ وَدِرْعٌ مِنْ جَرَبِ رواه مسلم Mentions in this narration that if the one who engages in niyaha the screaming, shouting, losing uh, uh, their hope and in depression and as though they have a problem with the decree of Allah at the time of the death of someone, the one who engages in those affairs, then they need to repent from having fallen into that. Maybe it occurred, maybe the calamity struck and you lost your bearings and it occurred. So if it occurred, it is upon that person to repent from what occurred and regret what occurred and make a firm, resolute Decision and mind that they will never go back to falling into that type of affair again. That is the tawbah that is being mentioned. At tawbah, tawbah linguistically, linguistically tawbah means a rujuah, coming back, coming back from something. فالتوبة لغة الرجوع وشرعا الرجوع من معصية الله إلى طاعة الله. Islamically, it is to return back, come back from the sinning, return to Allah, the obedience of Allah. Come back from the sinning, leave that, and go back to the obedience of Allah. That is tawbah, Islamically. And the conditions of tawbah are mentioned. Firstly, and the most obvious condition to make tawbah is to actually stop doing that action. You cannot make tawbah if you're still doing that sin. So, al-iqla' anidham, stop doing that particular sin. 
والندم على ما حصل and to have regret over what happened والعزم ألا يعود إليه and to have a resolute mind that you understand you will never go back to that sin again and then some of the scholars may add on others things like if the sin was in relation to someone else then you have to return their right and also the timing of the tawbah what is the cutoff point for tawbah the last time for tawbah قَبْلَ الْغَرَرَةِ It mentions in the hadith in Sahih Muslim إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَقْبَلُ تَوْبَةَ الْعَبْدِ مَا لَمْ يُغَرْغِرْ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts the tawbah of a person before the غَرْغَرَ occurs. The غَرْغَرَ is when the soul is now exiting from the body of the person, exiting from his throat, leaving his body. At that stage you want to repent now. Now you see what's happening, your soul leaving death. Too late. It must be before the soul exits from the body like so. And the other cutoff is when the sun rises from the west at the end of time prior to the day of judgment when the sun rises from the west then everybody will want to repent. But now when they see that clear sign then there is no repentance then. The sun rising from the west is from the major signs of the day of judgment. From the, 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 the major signs that will occur before the day of judgment. And the scholars, they mention there are how many major signs before the day of judgment? Ten. Because all ten are mentioned in one hadith. There is one hadith where some of the companions were talking about the day of judgment. And the messenger came out. And he said to them, what are you discussing? They said, we're discussing the day of judgment. So the messenger said, the day of judgment will not be established until 10 signs occur. And he mentioned those 10 signs. He didn't say 10 major signs. Hadith doesn't say that. It just says the 10 signs. So then how did scholars start calling them the major signs? How do you distinguish between major signs and minor signs if there is no hadith actually telling you these are major signs and those are minor signs? There is no hadith. So how have we got this categorization everybody talks about? The major ones and the minor ones, how do we get that when there's no hadith about what are major, what are minor? علامات الساعة الكبرى والصغرى كيف نفرق بينهما؟ حدثنا الرسول عليه الصلاة والسلام عن العلامات الصغرى وكيف تجي وكيف علامات العلامات الكبرى؟ بس ما سماها كبرى؟ أن وما سماها؟ Yeah, so where's the evidence? The scholars they say this hadith that we just mentioned now where some companions they were talking. About the day of judgment. And the messenger came. And he said to them, what are you talking about? They said, we are talking about the day of judgment. And then the messenger told them, the day of judgment, there are these ten signs. And he mentioned ten signs to them. Those ten signs are the ones that the scholars labeled as the major signs. And all the others, they labeled them as the minor signs. They said, for one reason, because all these ten were mentioned in one hadith together, they must have been the most serious ones. They must have been the most serious ones, because the messenger could have mentioned others to them as well, but he only mentioned those ten. So they've got to be the most serious ones. On top of that, literally, when you think about them, they are the most amazing signs from all of the signs. Because things like the return of Isa alayhi salam, the return of Isa alayhi salam, Dajjal, Ya'juj, Ma'juj, the sun rising, these are huge things. When these things happen, they are big, big events. So the scholars, they said, these are major signs because of their actual nature. The nature of them is something significant compared to other signs like there'll be a lot of killing. Now a lot of killing. 
In America, that's every day. If somebody doesn't die, it's strange. So those affairs are a bit different. But these are significant and serious affairs. So that's how they distinguish them. There is another way to categorize the signs of the hour. There is another way. You can say signs of the hour, past, present and future. Past, present and future. Because some of the signs of the hour have already happened in the past. There are some signs of the hour that are happening right now. And there are some signs of the hour that will happen in the future. So that is one way to categorize them as well. Past, present and future. And the other of course minor and major. The point here though was, uh, it was about the Toba. When the sun rises from the west, that is where the Toba is cut off. Then, So you need all of those conditions for the Toba to be valid. If anything is missing, then the Toba will not be valid. تمحو المعصية ولو كانت كبيرة ولو كانت شركا وكفرا بالله جل وعلا فالتوبة تجب ما قبلها من النياحة وغيرها So we know that توبة wipes out what comes before it التوبة تجب ما قبلها As the narration mentions توبة conceals and wipes out what came before it When you repent then it wipes out what came before it, even if it was shirk. Even if a person was a mushrik, he repents and accepts Islam. Then that is wiped out from before what he was upon. So the hadith says, the, the person who engages in niyaha, the screaming, the shouting, the loss of uh, uh, your belief in the decree, or, or not the uh, loss of belief, your uh, discontentment and your disgruntlement with the decree, those kinds of affairs, the one who engages in screaming and shouting and tearing the clothes, etc. The narration says, if that person does not repent, and the verbs used are in the feminine version, if she does not repent, because typically this is expected and known that it occurs more, if not always, from the women, not the men. So the narration mentions it in the form of the women, that if she does not repent before dying... Uh, then on the day of judgment, تُقَامُوا يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ She will be resurrected on the day of judgment. عَلَيْهَا سِرْبَال A sirbal meaning a thawb, her garment. She'll be wearing a garment. مِنْ uh, قَطِرَانِ قَطِرَانِ Melted copper. What do they say? Melted copper. It's the garment of peach. Garment of? Garment of peach. How is it spelled? P-I-T-C-H But uh, after it said liquid copper Liquid copper, okay Liquid copper, that's okay Liquid copper The garment will be of melted copper Liquid copper Al-Nuhas al-Mudhab Wa dir'un min jarab Dir'un, again talking about the garment Al-Jarab maradun jildi Yakunu fil-ibil wa yakunu fil-insan this they call uh, leprosy. Is that what it is? It says, uh, of mang, oh, manj. Oh, yeah, they call it manj as well. M-A-N-G-E. That's skin disease. A type of skin disease that occurs that she will be resurrected with a garment uh, with that uh, upon it, the disease uh, uh, widespread. How do they give the full English there? Chemis of the whole thing, what's the whole hadith? She will be resurrected. Wearing a garment of peach and a chemise of money. And a chemise. That's the garment of peach. Alright, yeah. So she'll be resurrected wearing a garment of melted copper and of that manj. The M-A-N-G-E, a type of disease. فَدَلَّ هَذَانِ الْحَدِيثَانِ عَلَى مَسَائِلِ so these two narrations, they highlight some points. We'll finish on this. Firstly, the impermissibility of those affairs of Jahiliyyah. And secondly, that the affairs of Jahiliyyah do not disappear completely. They remain the remnants of them amongst the people. Thirdly, 
أَنَّ مَنْ كَانَ فِيهِ شَيْءٌ مِنْ أُمُورِ الْجَاهِلِيَّ لَا يَقْتَضِي ذَلِكَ كُفْرُهُ That if somebody does have some characteristics of jahiliyyah in them, this does not necessitate they have become a kafir, but they have deficiency in them. And fourthly, which is the actual point here, is fihi dalilun ala tahreem al-masail al-arba' The impermissibility of the four things that we spoke about, your boasting of your ancestry, your uh, belittlement and criticism of other people's lineage, seeking the rain or attributing it to the stars and uh, wailing over the dead. Also, Al-Khamisa fihi dalilun ala anna tawbah tamhu ma qablaha. Tawbah wipes out what came before it. As the hadith says, Atbi'i sayyi'ata bil hasana tamhuha. Follow up a bad deed with a good deed. It wipes it out. And sadisan fihi anna qabool At-tawbah muhaddad bima qabla al-mawt That tawbah is only accepted before death Before the soul is exiting We'll stop on that for today then There are a couple of more narrations in this chapter And some ayat We'll continue with those from next week insha'Allah ta'ala Next week Isha still 8.30? Okay whatever time Isha is after Isha next week again for now, we can stick to the Isha timing. Whatever time Isha is next week, straight after Isha, inshallah ta'ala, we'll begin the class next week again. Anything else to add? Any questions? Hmm. Uh, how could you advise someone on, like, uh, they want to do a minute silence for Palestine? Or, or, uh, a minute silence? These kinds of things are obviously invented by the non-Muslims. To show your respect and to show your, your connection and your empathy with them. It's not correct. That's nothing Islamic to do a minute silence. A minute silence isn't what we've been commanded to do in the religion. You make dua. You make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the circumstances and the situation that is occurring. And no doubt it is something that everybody empathizes with. The circumstances that are occurring to the Muslims of Palestine. But the silence, the minute silence, what benefit has that brought you? Is that an act of worship you're doing or something? The minute silence, you have wasted your minute doing nothing in it. It's better for you to go sit there making dua for a minute, better than standing there silently in the crowd to show respect or to show your solidarity. That is not the way Islam has taught us to show solidarity or anything like that. Your solidarity is mentioned in the narrations. The Muslim ummah is like one ummah. As a Sheikh bin Ba said, it is like one bina, one structure, one structure together. And you know the narrations, if one body part hurts, then it hurts all of it. If one part of the ummah is in that pain, it hurts the rest of the ummah. So we are upon solidarity already. It doesn't require a minute silence. With the kuffar, you always have to do things to prove something. So now the Mother's Day, you have to have a day to prove your love for your mother. Islamically, that is every day of the year. You have to have a Father's Day to prove and to show and to do something for your father. Islamically, you do that all the time, every day. In the non-Muslims, they have to have days and events to show uh, their feelings and their, their uh, actions on those days. But Islamically, these are things that are in your lives every single day. You don't need one minute silence. You're going to show your solidarity for a minute and that's it. Then the kuffar are going to go do what they do and that's it, forgotten. Uh, Islam is not like that. Our solidarity with our brothers and sisters, there is not one minute. It is every minute of the whole day of the whole year of the whole life. The Muslims, all of them are believers. All of the believers are brothers. So you make dua for the, the, the situation, the, the, the Muslims in Palestine. Make dua for them. And do not forget them in your dua and the circumstances that are occurring. And we know of the oppression of those who are oppressing. And that is not hidden from anybody who recites the Qur'an. Anybody who recites the Qur'an and looks at the ayat of the Qur'an and how many are mentioned will not have any surprise left of the oppression of those who are oppressing right now. So you make your dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with absolute trust and conviction. And you ask Allah to guide the people and to return them back to their religion. 
Victory will not come even with their marches. Today I heard there's a huge march in London. All these marches they do, okay, they've marched. Do you really think anybody cares? The kuffar who are in government and whatever they plan, do you think they care? That they are going to change something because there was a march. And if you look at uh, in the academic field of these things, academically speaking, in the academic circles, marching and protesting is recognized as the weakest form of voice. It is for the masateen, they say, and academically. That when you can't do anything, then just go and scream in the street at least. Academically, it's known as the weakest form of voice. So that's all you got left? We have far more than that. We have dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have the call to tawheed. We have far more than this waste of time of marching and protesting and putting your banners up. Rather, we do something productive. The return to the religion is the key. That the people, they return to the correct aqidah, they return to obedience, they return to worship. As Shaykh Al-Haydan, when he spoke about Palestine and he spoke about these situations, he said the biggest calamity is that the Muslims have departed from their religion. And they have started following their desires and falling into sins. And then the situations, they are as they are. At the time of the Salaf, in the battle of Badr, in the other battles that the Muslims were in, in in all of those earlier battles and in many of them, who had the numbers and who did not? The kuffar, the sizes that they had, the armies they had in Badr, for example, and in other places when the conquering occurred, Why were they able to do all of that despite their numbers often being far less than the enemies? Because of what their status was with their iman, their aqidah, their obedience to Allah, their implementation of the religion. And that's why as Shaykh Al-Uthaymeen said, when it comes to these types of things, Palestine and other affairs, there are two ways to look at it. There are two perspectives. There is obviously the political perspective. Politically this and that and the countries and what's going on and Who's going to do what and who's going to send this and who can do something, who cannot. There's a political thing to it. On the news, that's the only angle, the, poli- the politics of it all. How it all works politically and this country and that country and Lebanon's going to do this. And it's all politics. That's one angle of things that exists. But then as Shaykh al said, never forget the other angle. The angle of the shara' in terms of the legislation. Legislatively, Islamically what is going on here. Then you start thinking about what are the shortcomings of the Muslims. Are the Muslims upon their five daily prayers in obedience to Allah or not? Are they upon tawheed or are they wearing amulets and putting their trust into necklaces and doing tawaf around graves and believing in awliya? You have to look at these events and calamities and whatever occurs from the Islamic viewpoint. And that's where the key is, as Shaykh al said. You're not going to rectify these situation politics, politics. It's going to be upon the Islam of it, the shara' of it, looking at returning the people back to the religion, to have the honor and the great status and respect and power the Sahaba did and the Salaf did, not because of their numbers and their weaponry, but because of what was in their hearts. And that's why Sheikh Muqbil said, the greatest thing that the Jews they fear is this tawheed in your hearts. That is what Islam has that nobody else has. This monotheism, this tawheed, this absolute trust in the one creator. So the minute silence, all of that is nonsense. We have far better than that and everybody should strive to do what you are able with your dua, with any other support which is possible when the avenues, they become available with the the humanitarian aid and food and supplies and charity. You do what you are able to do in those ways. So the question is that the issue in the hadith that was mentioned about the ancestry and lineage that if you boast over others, uh, uh, your ancestry and your lineage over others, and you belittle others, like the thing we talked about, the caste system, you look down on other people because you're a low caste and we're a high caste, 
and uh, you belittle other people and you raise yourself and elevate yourself. What is the Islamic ruling on that? According to the narrations that we've just seen here, it is an act which is haram. Not, uh, so if it's haram, then it's obviously a sin. If it's haram, then it has to be a sin. So it's haram, it's a ma'asiyah, it's a sin. It could be considered as a major sin. Because if it is being mentioned as one of the affairs of jahiliyyah and niyaha, for example, definitely major sin. Laysa minna man al-khudud wa Laysa minna, meaning from the kabair. So you could say these are from the kabair, from the serious sins that a person falls into them. Mm. It's similar. The narration about nobody, uh, anyone who has even an atom's weight of uh, pride, an atom's weight of pride in his heart will not enter paradise. That overlaps with this. It's the same kind of thing. Not having pride in your heart over others, believing yourself to be superior just because of lineage or social standing where your family was. They overlap. They are uh, similar. Mm. So they have these kinds of conversations as well where they'll say, as you mentioned there, or uncle used to be like this and used to do that. And when they're sitting around in the houses, the problem is greater than just that. The whole method of how the Muslims, many of them, uh, uh, carry out the janaza process, there are problems within that whole method. The whole issue of going to the person's house and sitting there, that is not even something legislated like this in the Sharia. That you open up your house and then everybody comes and sits and gives you consolations uh, or commiserations. That isn't even something mentioned. Not even in the mosque. To go sit in the mosque and then everybody comes and greets you and those kind of things. And there are things mentioned in the sunnah, what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to cook and make meals and this is what the people do now. The family makes huge meals, the order from the, the restaurants and all the outsiders can eat and everything. And you, you have a, a death in your family. How are you going around now expected to arrange food and arrange uh, takeaways and this and that and where people are going to stay? You've had a death in your family. This calamity has struck you. Islamically, the neighbors are supposed to take care of those things. The neighbors and others, they bring food for the family. You're not expected to be cooking and doing these things. You're not expected to be hosting a whole ton of people from everywhere. These whole, uh, all of this process of what Muslims do is the problem. So sitting around in the first place is not something legislated. Sitting around there to give commiserations and then start talking about stories and things. And, and many of them now upon bid'ah, they sit around with their date seeds on, in those gatherings of janazah. And they start reading things, uh, subhanAllah, 100 times and this 100 times. And they start reading all types of things in those gatherings. All of this is incorrect. So it's more than just trying to advise them about not saying those things. It's about trying to advise them on what the sunnah is as a whole regarding the janazah when somebody dies and what you're supposed to do or not. So that requires education, that requires knowledge, that requires teaching to explain to the people what to do and what not to do as a whole. Which will take time, but that's what it is. I mean, you, you can't just do that. You can't just put up a sign. Because you've got to be, you have to explain to the people what's going on. People don't understand. They don't know. They believe it's sunnah and it's good. How can you not go to the person's house and sit with him? And people don't understand. You have to educate people. You cannot just, as the scholars say, forbid someone from something without educating him to the, what the right path is. You cannot just prohibit the common and say, that's haram, that's haram, that's haram. But then, don't tell them what is actually halal. 
So doing it like that, Allah alam if it's really a wise way to do it. Because people are just going to think he's, he's maybe something wrong with him. You have to explain to the people there has to be some method of trying to do it. Get the message around with your close family members and others and try to spread that around that he's not taking guests yet and this and that. And you have to maybe try and do it in some way that's a bit more understanding to the people. Now even the mosque isn't really suitable. That's not correct either. For the person, the, the person to sit there and to have gatherings isn't really established to do that type of thing. But you know, it, it, it's people come, your family, your relatives, okay, they're going to come, they're going to see you. Nothing wrong with them coming and seeing you, but you having some type of schedule, you're going to be at this location and everybody's going to come and meet. But uh, you know, it's a long topic. It's another, maybe if we get to it one day, we do Kitab al-Jana'is through all of the sections. Anything else? That it's a major sin. Every time you see a hadith, laysa minna indicates whatever comes in the hadith is a major sin. Hmm. You know, some brothers say we're not supposed to blame shaitan, we blame for yourself. Is it, we are allowed to blame shaitan? No, the meaning of that is don't blame shaitan, blame yourself. It's like on the day of judgment, the shaitan will declare his innocence. They'll say, I didn't do anything. I just told them this, that, the other. They did it. So the meaning of don't blame shaitan is you're going to be responsible for the actions in the end. On, on Yom Al-Qiyamah, you can't say, but I did all these evils, but it was shaitan's fault. At the end, you're going to be responsible. That's the meaning of don't blame shaitan. Yes, the shaitan is the one whispering to you, etc. But you are responsible at the end for your actions because you can either listen to the shaitan or not listen to him. If you decide to listen to him, then it's your fault. He's your enemy. And that's why you have to not listen to him. If you do, then it's your fault. I'm not going to let you get away with it this time. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> uh, um, any advice to like the new Muslim like for her husband, basically? How to encourage her, teach her about the Afidan and Salah and stuff like that? Well, uh, any new Muslim who enters Islam stage by stage, you have to educate them. The main thing obviously being Aqidah Tawheed, which they should already have a basic concept of. That's how they entered into Islam. They have to have a basic concept of what monotheism is. If they don't even believe in that, don't understand that, then how do they become Muslim in the first place? So they have a basic concept of one uh, creator, of worshipping Allah alone. And then you build on that further with all these things we're talking about. Slowly, slowly, you expand and build further upon the points of Aqidah, upon the points of Tawheed. And then, of course, prayer, salahs, uh, wudu, these are basics. You have to start teaching them one by one, bit by bit, on a daily basis. Slowly start to learn all of the basics of Islam. Uh, it's just a stage process, stage by stage process, one thing at a time. Three Principles is okay. It's a good book. It's a good book to generally read through, to understand the basic, uh, basics of Islam, the pillars of Islam, the pillars of Iman. Uh, Day of Judgment, various things. It's a good book to read through. That's a good beginning book. All right, we'll stop on that for today. Inshallah ta'ala, next week after Isha.